Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. This week's guest on the podcast is Matt Haupt, Lead Portfolio Manager of the WAM Leaders Listed Investment Company. Matt has over 15 years experience as an analyst and portfolio manager, having worked on large cap stocks at Australian Executor Trustees, which is now part of IOOF, before joining Wilson Asset Management back in 2011. We'll discuss his take on the sustainability of the current rally in iron ore, whether or not the RBA rate cuts came in time to stop a recession, and their current views on one of the hottest sectors in the markets right now, gold producers. Finally, if you're loving the rules of investing, then why not tell someone about it? Pick your favourite episode and send it to a friend, or just head on over to iTunes and hit subscribe. Either way, you're helping to increase the profile of the podcast, and therefore, the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Matt, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Why don't we start with getting to know you a little bit? I'd love to hear about who were the mentors or or some of the, the figures in your investing career that really had a big influence on you. Yeah, it's an interesting one there. Uh, probably over the years, the, the people I gravitate towards would be the global macro traders. So the people that stand out would be Stanley Druckenmiller. I guess the reason there is his ability to condense all the information and all the noise down to the most simplest forms. And I guess over time as well, some of the big trades that he's put on, obviously the most famous with breaking the pound with Soros. And um, yeah, for me, those guys have been the biggest influence because I'm very much uh, liking the macro picture. So it'd be Stanley Druckenmiller and Jim Rogers, who's also was at Soros at the Quantum Fund. So for me, the track record they had and the ability to pick thematics and themes ahead of time, for me, those guys really stand out and have shaped how I view the world, really. It's interesting that you mentioned those guys. I'm guessing you would have seen the interview that Stanley did with Real Vision or six or eight months ago? Yeah, I did, actually. I thought it was quite fascinating to hear somebody who has been a global macro trader his whole life saying, I don't know how to trade global macro in the current environment. It was a really interesting chat and he was actually saying in the interview that he's investing in equities now, which is is not something that I would have expected to hear. Yeah, correct. Uh, I I think the comment he made was around he's had enough, he's going to put the uh, hang their hat up because it's too hard in this environment because to quote him, we're in a political bear market and, and, and that's very true. I mean, how do you trade some of the things going on at the moment, like even with Trump and his tweets and tariffs and, you know, second-guessing central banks. I mean, it's become incredibly hard. So, yeah, his focus on equities is an interesting one. And I think just recently he said he's had enough with equities and just buying treasuries because he thinks they're going to 0%. So I think that was his latest call. That's an interesting one. I haven't heard that one. (laughs) But what would you say would be some of the ideas or lessons or what have you learned from these guys? I guess it's having that thesis and always looking six to 12 months ahead, work out the ingredients. And by ingredients, I mean all the, all the, all the factors around interest rates, inflation, you know, currencies, bond markets, just working out 
what are the ingredients and how is it going to look in six to 12 months and invest for that right here, right now, instead of trying to react to the, the data in front of you, is really trying to work out how will the world look in six to 12 months and invest for that right now and have some courage in your conviction and, and your thematic and stick with it unless there's new data to change that. But that'd be the key lesson just to try and separate yourself from the noise today and look, look forward tomorrow. Let's talk a bit about the philosophy and the process that you've got there at Wilson Asset Management. I know there's a few key attributes that Wilson Asset Management likes to focus and look for. Could you explain to me what they are and what you're trying to achieve with looking for those things? Sure. So at Wilson Asset Management, there's a key, th- a few key things we look at. So the first, obviously, is the company, the fundamental data. So you're just trying to identify companies with all the things, everyone knows these things around free cash, good balance sheets, high quality accounting figures. So all the normal things everyone looks at. I guess the, the different things we're trying to find are events coming up that will change the perception of the market around a stock. So stocks trade on all the information in front of you at a point in time. We're trying to find that event will change the market perception because it's easy it's easier for the market perception to change than the earnings to change. So when I mean perception, it's around PE multiples. So you're looking for an event or a series of events which will change the perception and lift the PE because the PE perception change is a lot easier than actually driving the earnings to, at, for big upgrades. So that perception change is really a key factor we're looking for. And obviously all the other things like fundamental data and also quality of management and we always check the macro overlay, I guess, just to make sure you want to be investing with tailwinds, not into headwinds. So we're always making sure that the, the fundamentals or the backdrop support that investing decision as well. One of the things I know that you guys like to look for is undervalued growth stocks, as you alluded to there. That's traditionally been something that has been very successful in the small cap space. I know you've, you guys have got uh, several listed companies in that small cap space. But how do you find that that philosophy and that mantra translates into investing in larger companies? Yeah, it's a good question because obviously you don't have the growth there in in the larger companies because they're very much linked to the fundamental economic backdrop. So how we look at it is there's obviously more of a macro factor built into the larger companies versus the smaller companies. So we look for all the same things we're looking in the smaller space, but the macro factor is a lot higher. So we concentrate a lot more on the macro and the overall position of the company and their end markets. I mean, that's the biggest difference between the small and the large caps, just that macro sensitivity. So we spend a lot more time on that. So that'd be the key difference. The other, the, the fundamental process of looking at companies hasn't changed and, and will not change. It's just that attention on the macro factors uh, that's the differentiation between the small and the, the large companies. I'm curious specifically on the idea generation front, whether you guys approach it differently when you're looking for new ideas. One thing that stands out to me amongst the small cap universe is that there's a massive lack of coverage for one. There's a huge number of stocks as well, even if, especially if you're able to invest outside the top 300. And a lot of the stocks that fund managers are investing in that space and newly listed so they're not going to be showing up on 
you know, they may not be on people's radars unless a broker comes to them and tells them about it. Whereas the situation is entirely different in large cap. So I'm just kind of wondering whether that affects the processes that you guys have for actually finding ideas for further research. Yeah, I think it does. Like in the small cap space, opportunities abound. There's plenty there. They're undiscovered. Obviously, in the, the, the bigger companies are all very much known companies and very well researched. How we approach it is using a lot of screening tools. So we use factors. So recently, obviously, the, the macro sensitivity is large at the moment. So what we've done over the last year is starting to use a lot of macro factor filtering. So we'll, we'll run correlations over the last 10 years according to interest rates, credit spreads, volatility, a whole range of factors, and then rank the ASX 200 or 300 to work out what are the main drivers over the past decade and position ourselves. Because we, as we talked about, we're very much in a macro-driven world at the moment due to the central banks having such a large influence on where we're traveling. So that's how we've been screening recently. And it's been working very well, as long as you're picking the right factors, of course. But that has been a great screening tool. And again, we're looking for companies generally that have good, good earnings profiles, and obviously are cheap. So again, that doesn't change. But yeah, you're right. The the information arbitrage doesn't exist in the larger space. That's why you've got to bank on that more of the macro or the more of the six to twelve month outlook and really work around the industry whether they can actually grow above market. And also the market growth rates are a lot more important versus small caps, where obviously a small company can grow a hundred percent in a declining market. A large cap can't do that obviously that's very very true well let's talk a little bit more on some specifics i know you've got a pretty large overweight on the material sector at the moment so i guess a two-part question i guess what's the thesis behind that and has that come from a top-down point of view or has it come from a bottom-up point of view so our resource uh, materials uh, overweight is very much a top-down view. So it happened around, would have been June, July of last year when there was all the trade rhetoric. We were banking on a response by China through stimulus. So we looked at all the available levers China had and it was quite obvious to us that they'd have to come back and get the economy going through their traditional ways. They get the economy going through infrastructure, also property, so we're very much of the view that eventually China would do this and it took a while for them to do it. So we were starting to get a little bit jitterish, I guess, on the trade because it was taking a long time and the trade rhetoric was deteriorating. But we stayed with the bet because we knew that was ultimately the worse it got, the more they had to change. So again, we were very much there for a long time through a lot of noise uh, through June, July, August, September, October. But eventually the trade came good. And then we saw in China in January, they injected a lot of liquidity. In February, they took a pause and then March, a lot of liquidity as well. So that very much came through. And also we were playing a lot of these resources through iron ore. And then you had the tragic events in Brazil in January. So it got another lick to that trade. We have been reducing that exposure, predominantly due to we think there could be a a good chance of a higher US dollar for a period now. 
especially with the the Fed being the most hawkish out of the central banks at the moment. So there is a chance the US dollar will stay high, which will affect commodities in emerging markets. So that's something we're just monitoring at the moment and is a concern. But again, with the trade escalation, it puts pressure on China to stimulate further down the track. But I think it's a bit of a mind the gap at the moment with materials. There's probably a month or two of negativity. But again, I think towards the back end of this year, there could be a trade there, but it's a little bit early to, to make that call yet. Well, you alluded, of course, there to iron ore and the tragic and unfortunate events in Brazil. It has sparked somewhat of a mini iron ore bull market, I guess. And there's quite a lot of disagreement as to how sustainable that rally is. It's obviously come a very long way this year. I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head. I'm sure you'll correct me here, but I think it was trading around 65 to $70 earlier this year. And I think it's up around $110 now. Is that right? I think the, the forward contract has just moved from the active from September to January. So the pricing's come off a little bit if you look at the, the forward curve. But yeah, it's around that uh, 730 one at the moment on the on the active contract, which is the January contract. So And, and it's about um, 7 to 1 for the yuan versus the US dollar, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah correct. So... I guess my the question I'm trying to get at is is the the rally that has been triggered in iron ore both from the events in Brazil and the stimulus in China do you think that's sustainable over the over the medium term or is this something that's doomed to peter out in a few months time probably the initial response the way we think about it is you're going to get softness so the first half of the year in China the the steel demand or the steel production was extraordinary for, for a few months, it was running at 12%. Most people had flat for the year. So, again, you had the combination of the Vale shortages and very high steel production. So, the back half of the year is seasonally weak for China in steel production. They do some shutdowns and curtailments. So, naturally, you'd expect a drift. Also, with Vale feeding tons back into the market now, you'd expect some sort of drift. But, again... I, it's a it's a medium term story. So most players, when you speak to them, the BHPs, the Fortescues and Rios, are saying this is going to hang around for two to three years before Barley get back to their full run rate. So demand side is hard to say would stay up around that ten percent steel production. So you'd expect that to drift into the back end of the year, and the incremental tonnage just coming back from Barley suggests it'd be softness in iron ore. So it might drift ten fifteen dollars, but Again, as we talked about, the with the tariffs coming back in, China could step back in again with stimulus. So they have a real conundrum now. They they, they put some money in, then they pulled back out again. But if these ten percent on the three hundred billion kick through, they're really going to have to step up again and stimulate their economy. So I don't want to get too bearish on iron ore, but I think the next month or two you'll get weakness, and there could be a buying opportunity when China have to step back in to stimulate the economy. While we're discussing the, I mean, it's it was just overnight that President Trump made those announcements. By the time people will be listening, it'll be <laughs> a week or so ago. But so at this point, it's obviously pretty unknown what's happening in that trade war tariff situation. Again, it seemed as though it was starting to improve. Now it's it's kind of hard to tell. What's your take on these latest announcements from? 
from Trump? Do you think, it, it, has it changed the situation significantly? Do you think he's likely to get those raised tariffs through? Or is he just kind of firing more shots across the bow? It's an interesting one. It, the timing is impeccable a day after the Fed meeting. So it's hard to be not sceptical about the timing there. So he's disappointed with Powell not moving. He's come out the day after and has introduced some more tariffs. I'd expect, as you said, the viewers or listeners might hear this in a week, my bet is China come out and cancel the next meeting because one of the things China have said is they will not negotiate under threats and this is a clear threat. So logic suggests China withdraw from the next meeting or delay it. And I just I can't see a deal getting done now. China obviously have been delaying it, which is in their best interest. But their lines in the sand, I just don't know whether they can the US can accommodate them. The lines in the sand for China, as we understand it, are around SOEs. They don't want the Americans to mess with that the, the structure of SOEs. They don't want them to talk about political issues like Taiwan. And Around IP, they don't want strict enforcement of IP with through legal cases. So apparently, they are the lines in the sand. So I think the US, they only have two options no deal or a very weak deal. And I don't think they are going down the path of a very weak deal. So I just can't see how these two parties get together now. It seems that to be drifting further apart right here, right now, because I'd expect China to come out now and retaliate in some form. I, I don't think they can introduce any more tariffs. They're pretty well done there. Um, they could increase the rates, but I think delaying or canceling, canceling the next meeting, which is planned in the US, is probably their response. But it's deteriorating and... You're getting a deterioration of these trade effects in a softening economic environment as well. So the ingredients aren't great looking forward. So it's really um, be very cautious at this point in time. Yeah, there's certainly some tough issues to come to an agreement on, aren't they? I, I don't envy the negotiators on those deals. It's uh, it, it's one of those situations where it just seems as though the priorities of the two parties are, are so different that who knows when we're going to going to come to an agreement yeah they're so far apart now that to, to bridge that gap i just don't see how it's done now i think they really i mean china really changed their tune with their public commentary right before the the g20 they started being very aggressive which was the first sign of pushback so before i thought a deal would be done but china have really dug their heels in now and and the u.s are really hurting the the talks by going super aggressive, which is Trump style. He just you know tweets and throws it out there, and the Chinese hate this. So going forward, I just this there's too big a gap right here right now. So I think this is we've got to get used to this, and we've got to get used to the uncertainty. And the the PMIs globally are all very weak. So we're in a weakening economy and you've got all these trade issues on top of that. I know the central banks are all starting to posture and even the Reserve Bank of Australia have cut twice. But I, I, just, I just fear the central banks might be behind the curve now and this 
added uncertainty on trade is really going to hurt um, global economies and effectively equities down the track. Yeah, one of the things I saw recently, which just to support what you're saying there, was the a lot of the data coming out of Singapore, which is, of course, a massive trade and shipping and financial hub for Southeast Asia. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, the their quarterly GDP com- came in at a ridiculously no- low number. It was... It was was it negative 3% or something? I feel like that was yeah, the number in my head, but it sounds too large to be right. It was terrible. I can't remember the figure off the top of my head. I'll get it wrong if I try and guess, but it was very, very poor and very weak. And even last night, the Chicago PMI, it was horrendous. So another thing I do is you look at the... One of the things you can do with data is you look at the leading coincidence and lagging indicators... And at the moment in the US, the lagging are rating a lot higher than the leading. So when you look at the ratios, you can see the slowdown at the moment. So the US is decelerating. I'm just fearing this extra level of uncertainty on trade. Just It's just going to cause a lot of issues. So I don't think monetary policy can fix it. And then if monetary policy can't fix it, then we go down the track of unconventional again. So it, it's really we're at a really interesting juncture at this point in time. Yeah, it was negative 3.4% for the record, which is actually even worse than I thought. Crazy numbers, crazy (laughs) numbers. But let's talk about monetary policy in Australia. Back in April, you were saying that the RBA cuts would come too late to stop a recession. But the situation has changed quite a lot since then. Obviously, we were expecting a Labor government back in April, which didn't happen. APRA have changed the regulations around how loans are calculated or or how much people can borrow is calculated. So there's been a lot happening. And of course, we have now had those rate cuts. So I'm curious what your view on that is now. Has it it changed significantly since April? I I think it has. And going back, it's probably a level of frustration around the Reserve Bank because they were very much, you know, nothing to see here. The, the Australian economy is going fine. Um, inflation is going to pick up. Wage inflation is going to pick up. So I think it was a level of frustration on my part that if you don't act now, it may be too late. And you saw the incredible pivot by the RBA. Uh, it happened over a very short period of time where they finally admitted that there was a slowdown and the underlying economy was weak and we needed rate cuts. So is it too late? Probably not. I think they've done the right thing now, but I guess the call previously is you're right. We were going with the Labor government. A lot of their policy around taxes and mainly to do with property was a bit of a concern. So all in all, I think the recession risks have decreased and I applaud the RBA moving because I think they really needed to move and that pivot was very quick. So in all looking at it now, I'd say the, the recession risk is low. But the thing with the Australian economy, we're an open economy. So domestic policy is good, but we're very much held at what's happening on the global level too. So obviously China is is key there. So it depends what their policy is as well, what happens there. But yeah, I think the RBA have acted uh, swift enough and I think they've got more cuts coming. So yeah, I think looking at it now, the risk of a recession has decreased by their actions. 
You wrote not long ago, and I'm, I'll quote directly from you here, will central bankers have the self-control to let financial markets correct or will they continue in their pursuit of monetary policy perfection? I was hoping you might be able to explain to us why should financial markets be allowed to correct rather than this policy, which seems to have become the norm over the last decade in particular, of continuous in intervention to prop up asset markets and ensure that the wheels keep spinning. So what is it about allowing markets to do their own thing and self-correct that is actually desirable from your point of view? I don't think it's desirable as such, but I just think the the intervention is distorting markets and you get malinvestment. So the hurdle rates for investment don't exist at the moment and you've got a mispricing of risk and volatility. So it just creates an environment where there's artificial prices at the, and it really goes to the core of what is the role of a central bank. At the role, their mandates are around employment and inflation and what they've done with the cutting of rates and QEs is a structural change, particularly the QE. So they've injected liquidity into the market and it stayed there. The, the Fed tried to withdraw it and you saw what happened when they tried to withdraw it at a, at a pace with interest rate hikes. So for me, having interest rates too low and having the hurdle rates too low causes issues down the track. So for me, it's more of a case of all this debt in these low interest rates, there's a price to be bought and no one's willing to pay for it at the moment. So we're just delaying some of the issues with malinvestment. And what that causes is a lot of pain down the track, but I think the appetite for pain is very low from a politician's point of view and from a central bank's point of view because every, every time the asset market blinks like the stock market, there's panic and they intervene. And I don't think that that's their core mandate where they should be targeting inflation and employment. And I know financial stability is, is encompassed in a lot of their mandates, but the focus on financial assets, I think, has been overplayed. And I think there is a price to be paid down the track, but it's a very complex uh, problem and one that we don't really have a solution for at the moment because eventually you'd hope we'd come out of this extraordinary environment with say 14 trillion of negative yielding assets and expensive uh, equity markets where economies are performing and rolling over but you've got all-time highs due to these artificially low interest rates so it, it just goes to the question of is this economic thought process around you know, new Keynesian type approach around injecting liquidity, correct? And yeah, the the outcomes, I'm, I'm just not sure yet. Like we've seen what happened in Japan with extraordinarily low rates. You could argue Japan was different because they were behind the curve for about 10, 15 years. So eventually they threw a lot at it. But yeah, it's just, it's an interesting one. And I don't, I, I certainly don't have the answers, but it just feels like you're delaying some of the pain that has to happen and there is no appetite for pain at the moment. So you can see, you know, when you go for a ride in an Uber, uh, effectively shareholders are paying for that, are just burning cash. It's, yeah, it's just, it, 
it's hard to comprehend some of the um, valuations and where the money is going into investment. So, I mean, it's it's a very complex problem and one we don't have the answers for at the moment. And central banks are, are in the same boat. They don't have the answers and they're trying to run with this experiment as long as they can and see, see if we can get out of it. But at the moment, it looks like we can't get out of it before the next downturn. Yeah, the cynic in me is kind of whispering that all the pain that we're delaying now is just going to come back to us with interest down the track. And there's an old adage, I used to work in superannuation and we used to say that the trustee will accept short-term losses for the chance of long-term future gain, taking the pain in the short term to have that long-term benefit. But it almost seems like the central banks of the world have taken the opposite approach and are happy to accept that long-term pain if just in the short term we can just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. Yeah, correct. I mean, that's like if you could write the script, you know, the US market at all-time highs and the Fed are cutting, I mean, in isolation that just seems ridiculous. But, yeah, the... the like I know, I know the economy is slowing in the US and they need to accommodate, but it it really feels to me like we're getting back to currency wars and a relative game. So even Phil Lowe sort of said it uh, a couple of months ago with, with the ECB and all the forward curves rolling over, it gave him scope to cut. And again, with the Fed, like ECB are going to cut, they flagged it, and potential quantitative easing. So they they unless they want their dollar to go through the roof, they have to cut. So... It's almost like a race to the bottom and getting back to currency wars and moving your currency, you can move benefits. You can steal benefits from other countries by devaluing your currency. So it seems to be very much playing that game at the moment. Well, that seems to actually lead pretty naturally into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is gold. In a world where $14 trillion worth of bonds pay negative yields, all of a sudden that 0% that you get on gold doesn't look so bad. <laughs> so I know you guys have been pretty positive on gold for some time and we've just seen overnight the Australian dollar gold price set a new all-time high over $2,100 an ounce, which is just incredible if you think it wasn't that long ago that it was only at about $1,500 an ounce. And of course, as you were alluding to, you know, the RBA could have to cut rates further if uh, if we do end up in this global currency war, which could potentially support that even further. But I'm, I might be taking a bit too much of, <laughs> of your response away there, sorry. I guess what I'm getting at fundamentally is, you know, what what is it about the the gold sector that's so appealing to you in, in the current environment? And uh, well, actually, let's just start there and we'll, I'll follow it up with another question. Okay. <laughs> Probably, probably I'll, I'll walk back to last year and when we first invested was around October, November last year. And gold traditionally, most people use a four-factor model on gold. So you look at interest rates, you look at the US dollar, uh, volatility and inflation. And sometimes people just use oil as a, as a, a, a variable in your model. So when we were looking at those last year, all of them were like ticking the box for us for gold, like, and the gold price hadn't moved. So, and volatility was down at 11 and a half, 12. And we, and we thought, I mean, the real bet here was the Fed were going to pause. So we, we just thought the data was 
weak enough or there was enough question marks so the Fed would pause. So we invested in gold. Um, fast forward now, yeah, where do you go in gold from here? So the thing with gold is the, the factors vary as well. So they're not stable. So it's a very hard thing to say on, on a fundamental or, or, or on a model. At the moment, it feels like we're moving outside of the models and very much a, a bet on almost like a fiat money bet. People are saying the central banks are going to all go to zero and the, we could go back to a gold standard or there could be a, a potential for you know, hooking currencies back to gold in some form. I don't think that will happen, but it's very much a sentiment-driven thing now. The thing that could work in gold's favour is obviously interest rates fall, but also volatility has just started to spike up too. So overnight, the VIX was around 17 and a, and a bit, but we're seeing VIX at 30 last year. So there is volatility which could drive gold higher. Interest rates will fall, so that's a positive. The only, the only negative I see is a high US dollar, which is generally negative for, for gold, but you've probably got two or three factors out of the four which are positive for gold. So, And again, then you overlay it to gold equities. Is there room for gold equities to continue to go up? I think that's probably minimal. I think the delta there is gone a lot because you're seeing gold stocks re-rate about 100%. So sentiment will drive it high. These will always overshoot. So there's probably a little bit left in it, but it just feels like to me that on valuations, it's really hard to get more positive on on gold equities. On spot gold, there's probably more in the trade, but on gold equities, it, it's hard to make a case to deploy capital here. But I, I guess from a portfolio construction, I've always been of the belief that gold should be a little bit of your portfolio. And the way I've run it at WAM Leaders, we've run it between 3 to 6% of the portfolio at times. And we flex it up to 6 and it's probably sitting around 4% at the moment. So we've been decreasing because of the great run it's had. And the, the, the thing I found with gold is when it works for you, get out because it can change quite quickly. And, it, and the moves down are uh, very fast. And I, I generally have a rule like gold equities move about two to three times the movement of gold spot price. And that generally holds. So yeah, it, Things can move fast with gold, but I think it makes sense holding a little bit of your portfolio. I guess, you know, with interest rates going to zero and VIX probably going up, it does make sense to hold it in your portfolio. So amongst the large cap Australian gold miners, which do you think are offering the best value at propositions at the moment? I know, as you mentioned, some of them have run pretty hard. I mean, we were discussing before the show Northern Star, which is up like, how much is that up in the last year? I think it nearly doubled in the last year. But that, yeah, it'd be up 100%. Yeah, um, which for a stock of its size is is a pretty crazy move. So where are you finding the value now? Is there Are there pockets around amongst those, those large cap ones? Yeah, it's really hard. So Newcrest is very expensive. It's going into the ASX20, I believe. So it's probably going to get well bid on that basis. But yeah, there's really no value until you start going down to the smaller companies and they've got all got their issues. So the one that I quite like at the moment, but it's probably up the risk curve, is Oceana Gold. So Oceana 
are going through a few issues in the Philippines at the moment where they're, they've got to extend their license for another 25 years, but the governor making them jump through hoops at the moment. So the share price has come off since that announcement and it's not running with the gold price at the moment. So if they can get their licensing agreement back, which I think they will get, there's all that embedded value that hasn't been realized with the gold price movement. So that screens well. Apart from that, they're all very expensive. They're all trading above their net present value. And the ones that aren't have their own specific issues like um, Dacian, um, St. Barbara did a, an acquisition that people weren't too fond of. It was diluted for, for two years, I believe. So yeah, there's not much value left there at the moment. Yeah, there've been some spectacular blow-ups on the downside. And it's interesting seeing a uh, a sector where the the uh, the high performers are up 100, 200, 3%, 300%. Meanwhile, you've got some of the underperformers are down 90 or 95% over the same period. It's it's not often that you see such extreme divergence within the same sector. But that's actually the, the end of our main part of the interview. However, I do have three favorite questions that I like to ask every guest. So if you've got another five or 10 minutes to hang around, I'd love to jump into those with you now. Sure, no problems. Excellent. So first of all, could you share something with us that you've read recently? Could be a book, an article, a piece of research, anything like that, um, that really impressed you or really blew you away? So I was reading something the other day. The name of the book escapes me, which was not much help, but it really drove a, a point that, I mean, it's quite obvious, but it just reinforced my view. So it was a macroeconomic book. I think it was called like Fundamentals of Macro Research or Application. And it was really around the role of the US dollar. And it really struck me how critical the US dollar is to everything in the world. Because the US dollar, from memory, accounts for like 60% of trade. And there's so many currencies linked to the US dollar. So the US is in a really interesting position where they export their monetary policy. So whatever the US does through the Fed has massive flow-on effects through emerging markets, which are linked to US dollar. Effectively, they don't get to control their domestic monetary policy. So for me, it was just a... A refresher but also really drove home the the importance of the US dollar and and you cannot ignore this being an investor it has so many ramifications for all sorts of investments especially commodities which are the most exposed but emerging market exposures and and just drove the importance so for me that was really a refresher but like such a a key part of investing is not just looking at equity markets, but looking at all the other markets to make sure you're on top of what's happening and the implications of what happens when certain markets move. So for me, that was a, was a good read. Yeah, it's pretty consistent with what we've been saying today as well. I mean, we've discussed gold, we've discussed iron ore, we've discussed yuan, all of which are pretty intrinsically linked to that. So yeah, it's a good point. Correct. If you could go back in time to when you were finishing school or university, and give your younger self just one piece of investing advice, what would it be? That's a tough one. Investing advice, I'd say probably the thing 
I looking back is some of the silly risk I took on when I was younger. So and investing too much or or trading too much. So you really over the years you refine and you realize you don't have to go in every investment you see and every every opportunity. The more experience you have, the more selective you become and the the less silly risks I'd say you take on because investing is really about odds and, and probabilities. So what you're looking for is a highest return, the highest probability of return with the lowest risk. And and before I think it was just taking on the highest risk all the time in the hope. And yeah, hope is not an investment philosophy. <laughs> um, would probably be the big one as well. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure there's a lot of young investors who could uh, who could take heed of that one. Now, before I ask this last question, I have a bit of a disclaimer that I always like to insert. Don't try this at home. We're not actually <laughs> suggesting that anybody go out there and put all of their money in a single stock and forget about it. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, If the markets were going to close for five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in a single company, what would it be? Wow, that's that's an incredibly tough question at this point in the cycle. I'm going to go with a really boring one, Telstra. Yeah, okay, interesting choice. Could you explain your reasoning for that? Because it will still be here in five years' time. (laughs) That's a good reason. (laughs) Like, I I think, like, you look at telcos, a very defensive. uh, they got the monopoly, not monopoly, but the strongest market position. Um, I think I'm, I've got my bearish hat on by saying Telstra, hoping I can get my capital back in five years' time because I just think at this juncture, I just don't know whether you will get your capital back five years' time in most other companies. But yeah, it, it, Telstra or, or anything in the staples or any of those defensive sectors. Return of capital rather than return on capital. Correct, correct. <laughs> Well, look, Matt, that's actually all the time we've got today. Thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your thoughts with us. No, thank you very much. Pleasure.